and we'll get started. Let me make sure I get there first. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to look again this morning at these four precious names. One more name of your son, our Savior, the son that you gave the son that to us was born and for us was given. And we ask that as we consider this name this morning, that you'll not just help us to understand who the Prince of Peace is, but help us to embrace him and live every day under his peace-giving banner. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In March of 1863, a long time ago, an 18-year-old young man named Charles Appleton Longfellow walked out of his family's home on Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And unbeknownst to his family, he boarded a train that was bound for Washington, D.C., over 400 miles away, in order to join President Lincoln's Union Army to fight in the Civil War. Charles was the oldest of six children, born to Fanny Elizabeth Appleton and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the celebrated literary critic and poet. Charles had five younger siblings, a brother, age 17, and four sisters, age 13, 10, and 8. Less than two years after boarding this train, Charles' mother, Fanny, had died from a tragic accident when her dress caught on fire. Her husband, awoken from a nap, tried to extinguish the flames as best he could, first with a rug and then with his own own body, but she had already suffered severe burns and she died on the very next morning of July 10, 1861. And Henry Longfellow's facial burns were severe enough that he was unable even to attend his own wife's funeral. He would grow a beard to hide his burned face and at times feared that he would be sent to an asylum on account of his grief. While dining at home on December 1st, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram that his son had been severely wounded four days earlier in the Civil War. On November 27th, while involved in a skirmish during a battle of of the Mine Run campaign, Charlie was shot through the left shoulder with a bullet exiting under his right shoulder blade. It had traveled across his back and skimmed his spine. Charlie barely avoided being paralyzed by less than an inch. He was carried into New Hope Church in Orange County, Virginia, and there was transported down the river. Charlie's father and younger brother, Ernest, immediately set out for Washington, D.C., arriving on December 3rd. Charlie arrived by train on December 5th. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was alarmed when informed by the Army surgeon that his son's wound was very serious and that paralysis might ensue. Three surgeons gave a more favorable report that evening, suggesting a recovery that would require him to be long in healing, at least six months long. On Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow, by then a 57-year-old widowed father of six children, the oldest of which had nearly been paralyzed as his country fought a war against itself, wrote a poem seeking to capture the dynamic and dissonance of his own heart and the world he observed around him. 
He hears the bells outside on Christmas and the singing of peace on earth, but observes the world of injustice and violence that seem to mock the truth of his statement. After all, his wife had just died. His oldest son had nearly been paralyzed in a war that that he considered his country shouldn't even really be fighting. The theme of listening recurs throughout the poem, leading to a settledness of confident hope, even in the midst of his bleak despair. And here's the poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought low as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. What that song, that, po- that poem that became a song, captures is this dynamic dissonance, the way he describes it, of seeing the world one way, namely full of injustice and hatred and oppression and death, And yet we hear these bells on Christmas Day that announce peace on earth, goodwill to men. Where is this peace on earth that we sing about on Christmas? Now, he's not caving into despair. He's wrestling with the very serious tension of living in this broken world, which has now been entered by the Prince of Peace. His full reign of peace is not yet here, but it will be. But his reign of peace is here. And it is being worked out all around the world as this good news, this gospel of peace is proclaimed to all people. And Wadsworth Longfellow got that. He understood that. Because he understood Isaiah 9, 6. He understood the promise of the Prince of Peace. He understood that this peace involves right relationships between God and man and man and man. And while in this fallen world, this peace may be attacked And undermined, nevertheless, it cannot be conquered, for the Prince of Peace has come. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The coming of the Prince of Peace. This is the fourth name that Isaiah gives to this son who is to be born, this child who is to be born. And he's going to be called the Prince of Peace. Not just the wonderful counselor, not just the mighty God, not just the everlasting father, but the Prince of Peace. Of peace. That is, he is going to be the one when he comes and is born who is going to once and for all bring peace to his people and for his world in which they live. Micah in the Old Testament, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5, says that he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Isaiah is saying the exact same thing as Micah is saying. 
course, if we go to the New Testament, we see also the fulfillment of this idea of this Prince of Peace being in the being the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 10, verse 36, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all. And who can forget Ephesians 2, 14, where Paul simply writes, he himself is our peace. It's clear the New Testament picks up the idea of the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9 as being the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, in Luke 1, when he came into the world, it was announced that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke one seventy nine. So the child that was to be born on Christmas Day would bring his people peace. But the question is, is what kind of peace is he coming to bring? Because we all, I, I don't think anybody in the world doesn't want peace. You talk to anybody, they want, they want global peace. They don't want ISIS running its reign of terror or North Korea threatening Sony. They don't want anything like that going on. People want global peace. They also want inner peace. They don't want their they don't want their lives to be marked by rancor and discord and frustration and division and problems. But I would argue that what most people want is not so much peace as comfort. They just want to be left alone and not bothered. But as we're going to see this morning, real peace is costly. Peace is costly for God to make peace with us. Peace is costly for us to live in peace and harmony with one another. It's costly. And it's that sort of peace that the Prince of Peace has come to bring, a costly peace. So what kind of peace does he give? Here's where we're going this morning. This Prince of Peace is going to provide universal peace between God and man, between man and man, and within man. So here's our outline. We're going to see the Prince of Peace has come to bring upward peace with God, That's first inward peace with ourselves and outward peace with others upward, inward and outward upward peace with God, inward peace with ourselves and outward peace with others. Let's start with upward peace with God. Would you go with me to Romans chapter five, Romans five, and we're largely going to be outside of Isaiah and spending most of our time this morning in the new Testament. We'll come to Romans five in a minute. The fact is, here's, here's the truth, as most of us, I believe, are aware this morning. Apart from God, there is no real peace in this world. The peace of putting your blinders on, of going to bed and forgetting about it, is fleeting and worthless. And yet, we as people try desperately to hold on to this kind of mock peace. But it's a very futile pursuit. The Bible tells us, in fact, why we can't know peace. Jeremiah 17, 9, a familiar passage, tells us that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Isaiah 48, 22 says there is no peace for the wicked. So you've got people with wicked hearts and wicked hearts are not homes for peace. There is no peace for the wicked. If man's heart by nature is desperately wicked, it cannot find true peace. It can perhaps find momentary tranquility, even if that tranquility lasts 35 years. It can find shallow feelings that are often stimulated by positive circumstances with a lot of mixed in ignorance. But the fact is, is that those momentary 
tranquil experiences are fleeting. Those shallow feelings are fleeting. Those positive circumstances come and go. And therefore, deep, settled peace eludes us by nature. Because by nature, our hearts are not habitations for God's peace. Throughout the land of Judah in Jeremiah's day in the Old Testament, problems were rising up fast. The problems in Jeremiah's day were very similar to what was going on in Isaiah when Isaiah prophesied this passage in Isaiah 9. But a great army was coming to destroy Jerusalem and take the people into captivity, and they were frightened. Peace was being removed from the land, and there was destruction coming like they had never experienced. Remember what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 6.14? It says, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. In other words, in those days, they tried to patch up their evil ways and say, peace, peace, everything's going to be okay. There was a lot of talk about peace and a lot of encouragement to be at peace, but there wasn't anything underneath the peace that was going to give substantial peace. There was a lot of talk, but there wasn't any genuine peace. Peace. In chapter 8 of Jeremiah, he says, We waited for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, what came? Terror. They were looking for peace. But a few chapters later, Jeremiah repeats the same observation. In chapter 14, verse 19, Have you completely rejected Judah? Or have you loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that we are beyond healing? We waited for peace, but nothing good came. And for a time of healing, but behold, terror. And then Jeremiah puts his finger on the source of the trouble and why even though people were pronouncing superficial peace and saying, just feel good, it's going to be okay, things are going to be all right, don't worry. He puts his finger and says, do not enter a house of mourning or go to lament or to console them, for I have withdrawn my peace from this people, declares the Lord. Where sin and idolatry is present, where there's wickedness, And contrariness to the will of God and the purposes of God, God's peace is gone. And so where there's going to be peace, there has to be a decisive death blow to sin. And that's what we see in Romans 5 and really the whole book of Romans. But we see as we come into the New Testament why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace and why it says of him that he is going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, the first way he's going to do that is by securing upward peace with God for us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 says, God reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. It's as if God's on one side and we are on the other side And then Christ steps in and fills the gap and takes the hand of God and the hand of man and puts them together again, reconciling all things to himself, placing them together in the same grip. And notice how he made that peace happen through the blood of his cross. We have been brought together from God being reconciled to man through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. He makes peace with God By removing our sin, which was the ground of our alienation to begin with. Isaiah 53, 5, familiar words, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
There is no peace with God apart from a bloody cross where the Son of God is abandoned to the wrath of God. There is no peace with God apart from that. And Romans 5.1 stresses this. Let's read it together, the first two verses of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. By nature, we are all vile, wicked, sinful people that cannot come into God's holy presence. And nevertheless, something happened in order to make us, who were by nature unholy and unrighteous, able to be at peace with a holy and righteous God. And what was that? We have been justified by faith. That means Christ's perfect life, his perfect record, his perfect righteousness has been given to us in such a way that God declares us innocent of all of our sin. We are counted righteous in Christ. We are forgiven by Christ. So that Paul can say later in chapter 5 that we are no longer enemies, but we are at peace and we are reconciled to God through him. And oh, what a difference that makes on our day-to-day basis when we wake up every morning. Think about it. Christian, tomorrow morning, you're going to wake up to a relationship with God that in terms of justification and his absolute acquittal of you is absolutely perfect and is never going to change. God's disposition towards you is absolutely settled. It's settled. It's done. Because of his finished work, we no longer live with fear and doubt about what God thinks about us. Not only do we now enjoy unbroken access to our father, but we are assured of his great delight, his perpetual rejoicing, and his constant pursuit of us. And even when he must discipline us, our father does so with a heart of love and never with a heart of disgust and agitation. There is no peace like peace with God. And that's why we want to start your year with a book like New Morning Mercies. We want to encourage you to pick up something that's going to cause you to reflect day by day by day by day on God's mercy to you every single morning of your life. They're new every morning because we need them every morning. We need fresh reminders over and over again that Jesus came to put away our sin. And because he has put it away once for all by the sacrifice of himself, we we have peace with God. It is finished. And that's never going to change. Our upward peace with God has been secured by our Prince of Peace. Maybe you're here this morning, though, and where you stand with God is uncertain. Let me tell you this, you can have 100% peace with God this morning. If you, were, if you came in here not knowing where you stand with, with God or, or with Christ, but feeling like God's distant from you and he doesn't feel near to you, well, there's a reason for that. As Isaiah 59 says, your sin has made a separation between you and God. And once your sin gets taken care of and dealt with, peace with God will flow into your life. The peace... The the peace that transcends all understanding as we're going to see in just a minute. You can have absolute peace with God. And you get that by throwing your sin away, by saying, going to God with your sin and saying, God, I turn away from this. I repent of this. I don't want this. I want you. I want your peace. I want your son, Jesus. And if you will, by faith, receive him, 
you have been justified by faith and you have peace with God. It's that free. It's that amazing. It's that costly. It's that glorious. So that's upward peace with God. Secondly, let's talk about inward peace. Inward peace. You know, sometimes this is an aspect of the peace, the Prince of Peace, that we sometimes forget. You know, we, we, we sometimes overreact in the church because we, we, we think, oh, because inward, inward peace is so popular in our culture today. I mean, it gets talked about all the time. You know, we need to be at peace with ourselves. And we, you know, but that's biblical. That's a biblical idea. There's nothing unbiblical about being at peace with yourself. In fact, that's what the Prince of Peace came to give us is peace within, not just peace above with God so that we have a reconciled relationship with him, but peace within. That is peace of mind, peace with ourselves. I'm defining that as the absence of paralyzing stress and anxiety. Jesus came to free us from paralyzing stress and anxiety. He came to grant serenity, calm, quiet comfort to us in our inner man, in our souls, in our hearts. I mean, if you read the news or see the newspapers nowadays, the, the, the statistics for anxiety are off the charts. More than, According to the National Institute of Mental Health, more than 23 million people suffer from anxiety disorders. Anxiety disrupts their work, their family, their social lives. It's the most common of all mental disorders that are treated. Anxiety is typically characterized by mental agitation, by uneasiness, by either mild or severe. It primarily has to do with what may happen in the future and the crippling worry and fear that accompany such thoughts. And as the Bible teaches, anxiety and worry is one of the most counterproductive things we can do. I read this week that worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it's not going to get you anywhere. It won't. And, and, and Jesus stressed that in Matthew 6, right? We're not going to add a single hour to our lives by devoting it to worrying about what might come. And as Christians, we certainly aren't immune to the perplexing problems of anxiety. I mean, even Christ's faithful disciples can worry and be troubled. We see that all throughout the Gospels. And just as anxiety can dis- disrupt work and family, it can also hinder in our service to Christ. Jesus teaches that it's often a reflection of little faith on our part, worrying about things like food and clothing and preserving our lives when we ought to be concerned about the greater interests of his kingdom. But the Prince of Peace steps into this and promises to give us peace, but not the kind of peace that the world gives us. Listen to John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That is inward peace promised by the Prince of Peace. My peace, my inner serenity, solemnity, calmness, quietness, comfort, I want to give to you. And it's not as the world gives which is based on circumstances or changing something up. It's about his presence there with us in the mess, in the brokenness, in the difficulty. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. 
And it's a peace that he gives, according to John 16, 33, that's there despite tribulation. Trouble and difficulty and trial are going to come, but the heavenly peace that Christ promises is available to us by faith apart from earthly circumstances. So let's go to Philippians 4 and look at this for a minute. Philippians chapter 4 is the classic text on this inward peace that Christ promises to us as the Prince of Peace. Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here it is. Verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is a peace that Christ promises to us as the Prince of Peace that's going to surpass understanding, but that is going to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That word for guard is military kind of language. It's that sort of fortified protection that he offers us through his presence, through prayer, through casting our anxieties on him. So how do we get that peace? Where does that, how does that, how does that peace that Christ gives us appropriated? Because it's one thing to know it and it's another thing to experience it. It's one thing to Know it in your head. It's another thing to rely on it in your heart and to base and to live it out by faith. Well, I think Philippians 4 gives us the answer. It's right there in the passage. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We can't have inward peace until our joy is uncircumstantial. Okay? You have to have joy in something that the world can't strip from you. Your health is going to go away. Circumstances are going to change. People are going to die. Difficulties are going to come. Unexpected things are going to happen. Do you have a friend that won't fail you then? If you do, you can have peace. Trials are revelatory, aren't they? They show us where we're hoping, where we're trusting, where we're banking our source of peace and happiness on. And if our peace goes, when that goes, behold your source of peace. But if that goes, yes, with struggle, yes, with difficulty, but peace remains then your peace is not rooted in that. Isn't that why Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 that we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? I mean, that's what he taught his disciples, right? They're fretting about things. They're anxious. But, but, but Jesus, I need clothing. I don't want to run, be running around Galilee naked following you. I need food. I need a house. And Jesus is like, no, you need the kingdom. That's what you need. You need to seek that. And all these things will be taken care of along the way. So it's a a priority thing, isn't it? If our priority is the Lord rejoicing in him, seeking first his kingdom, we can have peace, inward peace. 
in the midst of storms and troubles and difficulties and trials. But we just have to make sure his will, his way are our number one priority. We also, I think, have to simplify and strip down. I think we have a problem of, you know, accumulatitis in the, uh, in the post-Christmas season. I don't know about you, but when I get more and more gifts and I see my kids getting more and more gifts, my stress level goes up. Because I'm like, all right, there's another thing I've got to maintain. There, and just something else, right, on top of everything else that I'm trying to keep in my house from overflowing the, the boundaries of all of my rooms. So it's like more stuff. Stuff comes in. Well, that doesn't serve for simplifying life, does it? I told, I told all my, or I'm going to tell all my family, Katie and I have talked about this. I said, all right. And some of you parents, you've been around long enough. He's like, yeah, he's on the right track. You know, we've done that. Is in the future, okay, maybe one little gift about that big and then buy him a really great experience. <laughs> okay, send us the Disney World or give us a hundred bucks toward it. But please don't buy us another 15-foot thing. I don't know what to do with that. Other than put it in the garage where there's no room. (laughs) See, Joe knows what I'm talking about. He's got a lot more kids. He can sympathize with that. So simplify. That's what Jesus says to Mary and Martha, right? I mean, Martha's going around. She's worried about lots of stuff, taking care of lots of things. And there's, of course, the parable where Jesus talks about the things of this world choking us out. Right? There is something to that. And this accumulation of lots of things and lots of stuff. And I hope you got what you wanted for Christmas. All right? Not going to beat up gift giving and all that stuff. I'm just talking about what Jesus is talking about. Only one thing is necessary. 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 Not necessarily wanted, but one thing is necessary for our lives. Sitting at the feet of Christ. That's simplicity. That's what Jesus commends to us. If you want him to lead your feet into the way of peace, Luke 179, look for a life of simplicity. It doesn't mean look for a life in which everybody feels sorry for you because you look homeless and poor. All right, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a stripped down simplicity to your life where there's not all kinds of stuff vying for your attention all the time. I'm not just talking about physical stuff, talking about lots of things that can crowd into our lives and choke out what is most important. I'll let the spirit do its, do his work in your soul on that one. And then there's also the element of faith. Right? Jesus comes to them when they're in the, to his disciples in the midst of all this struggle and difficulty. And he says, look, oh, you have little faith. Don't you realize what you have? Don't you understand who you are in me and what I've promised for you and what I've promised to be for you? Is not my father's house full of many rooms? And I go and prepare a place for you. We're not going to lose anything. That matters anything, not one thing that ultimately matters for God's people is going to be lost to God's people. You know, you only live once, right? No, no. Yes. You pass through this life one time, but for a, for a Christian, we live forever. And our, and most of our good things are beyond the grave. 
And then, of course, pray. Prayer is so key to having the peace of God. I mean, that's right, that's right at the heart of it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So you see that? Do not. That's some strong words right there. Don't worry about anything. Wait, but about this? No, not that either. Nothing. Nothing. Don't worry about it. But in everything, you notice how black and white Paul is here? He's got a real simple pill. I mean, it's a hard pill to live, but it's a, it's a one for all. And it's not a placebo. It's the real deal. Don't be anxious about anything. Anything that makes you anxious, stop being anxious about it. <laughs> simple said, right? But in everything, instead of being anxious about that, in everything, with thanksgiving, let God carry it. Bring it to God, put it on his shoulders, leave it at his feet. That's what he says. Let your request be made known to God. Do it with thankfulness and do it in everything and don't be anxious about anything. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. So that's the inward peace that the Prince of Peace came to give us. Third and finally, outward peace. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn back one book in the Bible to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at outward peace with others to wrap up. Man, does this catch the headlines, the lack of outward peace in our world. I mean, it's on every single news program talking about who's angry with who and what's going on with who and what problems are coming out and who said what about who and who's planning on doing what to who and we live in a world where outward peace is difficult to come by. I mean, you have racial differences, white, African-American, Asian. You have ethnic differences, Hispanic, Oriental. You have political differences, conservative, liberal, moderate. You have economic differences, poor and wealthy. You have lifestyle differences, simple, extravagant. You have gender differences, male, female. I mean, all this diversity in our world put there by God, ordained by God, nevertheless, Amazingly diverse to live in and amazingly difficult to navigate. All this diversity leads to lots of problems for our sinful hearts. Racial differences can lead to racism. Ethnic differences can lead to prejudice. Political differences can lead to wars. Economic differences can lead to envy. Lifestyle differences can lead to arrogance. Gender differences can lead to harassment. All kinds of stuff. And such diversity often contributes to the lack of peace that we experience. But here's the deal. In Christ, all this changes. In Christ, all this changes, which is why the church is to look absolutely different and to make the world scratch its head in how so many different people can live in harmony together that have absolutely nothing in common with each other except Jesus and a few other inconsequential things. But Jesus is enough to hold a group of people together in unity. That's what Paul assumes in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read verses 14 to 18. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He's talking about the church now. Made Jew and Gentile to opposite ethnic classes. Who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh. That is through his death on the cross. The dividing wall of hostility. There was a, there was a huge wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying in Christ that's broken down. 
How did he do it? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two making peace. Let me, here's, here's the deal. Here's the, here's the point. He took down what separates and he united them by grace. The gospel unites, the law divides. At least the external ceremonial law that Paul's talking about here, the thing that marked their Jewishness. Okay? So he's saying those things that mark them as ethnically Jewish, all those rites and ceremonies and laws, all that stuff that separated them from Gentiles who didn't observe that way of life and didn't do those things, said, I put all those things away in Christ. Nothing is more fundamental to who you are, Jew, than Christ Jesus. Not your Jewishness. And Gentile, nothing is more fundamental to who you are than Christ Jesus, not your Gentileness. Nothing about who you are ethnically or culturally is the, is the main thing. Is the, is the common denominator is the grace that we have received through the cross of Christ. That's how he creates one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. The ground, as you've heard it said before, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes to Christ for salvation. Everybody owns their sin. Guess what? We can have a unified bunch of people. And to the, to the degree that we hold to our cultural distinctiveness and want to maintain an identity apart from Christ and celebrate those things as more important than Christ, to that degree, we're fostering and feeding disharmony in the church. So Paul stresses, verse 16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off, that's the Gentile, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jew, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There it is. Common ground. And that's how outward peace is resolved. It comes through the Prince of Peace, the work of the cross. And notice how central the work of the cross is to all these forms of peace. It's not like God secures one, uh, you know, one solution for upward peace, one solution for inward peace, and one solution for outward peace. No, one solution, the bloody cross of Christ secures upward peace with God for us by forgiving all of our sins and giving us Christ's righteousness, secures inward peace because now we have a reason to be thankful, right? And then outward peace secures that by breaking down, dividing things that would separate us from each other that are not fundamental to us. So he brings us near through the blood of the cross. So then it doesn't matter ultimately what our earthly citizenship is or what country we belong to because we're all citizens of heaven in Christ. That's what's most fundamental. And it's not fundamental that you're a man or you're a woman, but that we're fellow workers together for the kingdom of God. And it doesn't so much, even though the roles in, uh, are, are, are distinct and important between husbands and wives, what's most important is that we're fellow heirs of the grace of life. That's what's most important and most fundamental. And so marriages can be healed. The gender differences and distinctions can be healed. And earthly discord can be healed if in Christ we are fellow citizens, fellow workers, and fellow heirs. So notice that God's goal in redemption is not confined to upward and inward peace. God wants this peace to go out from us. And in Christ, we can choose reconciliation over resentment. We can choose building bridges over nursing grudges. We can choose remembering the gospel instead of remembering the hurts of others against us. And there are no 
people better qualified to give outward peace and to pursue outward peace with others than those who have received upward peace with God and inward peace from God. And so what, it, what are the components? And I'm going to go through these very quickly. What are the components of this outward peace that we're talking about? I have three, and I'm just going to tick them off fairly quickly, and then we're going to close. All right, the first is we desire as Christians to see those who are not yet reconciled to God, reconciled to God. We want others to experience upward peace with God. That's fundamental to what we're about as a church. That's our mission. We want to see people reconciled to God through Christ. And so evangelism is critical to our identity as peacemakers, right? That's, that's who we are. We've, we've received upward peace with God and inward peace with God. How can we not want to invite others into that? How can we not want to invite them to experience upward peace with God and inward peace with God or of God? More on that next week. All right. Jonathan's going to cast some vision for us for 2015 and, and it's going to be strong on that point on that point. So I'm not going to say any more about, about that for right now. But I think we, a second one that we also want to want to emphasize is we want to see people generally reconciled with each other. Hostilities broken down, difficulties overcome, that kind of stuff. And that includes Christians with other Christians, or I should say that includes Christians with non-Christians and that includes non-Christians with other non-Christians. I mean, the church hurts. I mean, we should hurt and we should weep and we should be broken when we see things like Ferguson and Eric Garner, all that stuff going on. That should bother us because we represent the Prince of Peace. We desire to see outward peace among people. We don't want to see that ransacking our world, hate and all that stuff going on. Not as God's people, we don't. So remember Romans 12, don't have time to turn us there, but Paul's instructing us about how to handle things when somebody hurts us. When we get hurt by somebody, what are we supposed to do? Well, we got three possibilities, right? Somebody's wronged you. Somebody's picking on you. Somebody said something about you, whatever. How are you going to respond? Well, there are three possibilities, right? You can fight fire with fire. You can fight fire with a wet blanket. Let me explain those two. You can fight fire with fire. Get back at them. Revenge. Well, that's sin. And adding to the problem, fueling the fire. You can fight fire with a, a wet blanket. Oh, just forget about it. Oh, just ignore it. Oh, just, no, that's not, that's not good. That's not peacemaking. No, peacemaking does what God does in peacemaking. Step into the brokenness and mess and do something costly. Which is... Fight fire with an invitation to a barbecue. That's how you fight fire. Somebody hurts you, invite them over to your house. Get to know them. Get to know their story. Talk to them. Don't fight fire with fire. Don't fight fire with a wet blanket. Don't ignore it. Don't retaliate. Love. Return good for evil. Boy, if the church did that. Man. You realize, brothers and sisters, we're trying to live down years of not doing that in our culture. And that's why we have a hard time getting traction. It's, it's true. It's why a lot of people will say, I love, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Because the, the way the church relates to each other with all the backbiting and infighting and problems and difficulties is the same way the world interacts. They don't see 
a higher purpose than personal preference and ease and comfort. They don't see that. They don't see sacrificial love. They don't see costly, costly obedience that will try to repair a relationship at the inconvenience of someone else. But if they saw that, they would see Jesus. And then finally, we want to see Christians at peace with other Christians. I mean, we don't want to draw our boundaries so tight that we start to pronounce heresy on all of God's people. I mean, there are churches that do that kind of stuff. I mean, it's like they're against every other, for every other Christian but them. What kind of stuff is that? It's stuff that grieves the heart of Jesus is what it is. And I'm not talking about false Christianity that, that is masquerading as real Christianity. I'm talking about real genuine Christians with whom you have differences that are non-essential. We should be able to work with all kinds of Christians with all various belief systems, as long as what they hold is most precious is the gospel and a right understanding of who Jesus is. That's it. As far as fellowshipping and enjoying one another and working together in collaboration for the kingdom of God. And it's a lot of that, again, that has set us back in our efforts to evangelize the world and preach the gospel and plant churches. I mean, Jesus prayed for it. He prayed in John 17 that we're all one. I know liberals quote that all the time, but it's Jesus who quoted it first. And he means it. He wants his people to be one. He wants his churches to be at peace. He wants us, according to Colossians 3.15, to have the peace of Christ dwelling deeply in us. He wants us in the language of Ephesians 4.3 to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We have it. We need to maintain it. We have to fight for it. We have to work hard to preserve the shalom of our fellowships the peace of our fellowships and it's a broken world and it's not going to happen perfectly. You know what? And that's new Testament Christianity too. It's not 21st century. Wow. We wake up. We have church problems. No, we got church problems. Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, first Corinthians. Anybody want to pastor that bunch? I mean, we just, and Paul doesn't give up and say, well, They're too far gone. I quit. No, he presses in and he pursues the peace of those fellowships at great cost to himself. I mean, how many sleepless nights did that guy devote to the Corinthians? How many visits? How many letters that aren't first and second Corinthians? We know he wrote more. That he pled with them and poured out his heart for them. That's what we as God's people do. We don't have this rosy picture of life in this world. We know it's a big, broken, chaotic mess. And all we're trying to do is take up the sword of the spirit and push back Satan and push forward the kingdom of God. That's it. But here's what we can be thankful for. That one day, this Prince of Peace is coming back. And in that day, when he returns, his kingdom of peace will be fully realized. We live in days right now that are, that have peace unrealized. It's not, it's not fulfilled in its complete sense. The fullness of the kingdom has not come. So the fullness of peace has not come, but when the fullness of the kingdom comes, which when the Prince of peace comes, the fullness of his peace will come. And there we will live in a world on this earth renewed 
in which there is perfect harmony between God and all of his people, and there is perfect harmony between everybody who's living there. And what a, what a, what a great day that's going to be. I mean, we're not going to, I mean, we're going to, I think that's going to be some of the biggest surprises of heaven is the stuff that used to tick us off in the earth that doesn't bother us anymore. I mean, it's like, good grief. How did I ever get bent out of shape about that kind of stuff? And we'll just, we'll just be, we'll just marvel and we'll just be amazed. Well, even so come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Glorious Prince of Peace. We come to you this morning and thank you that one day you're going to reconcile wolves and lambs, leopards and goats, calves and lions. That all the things that create war and cause war and division and difficulty in our world will be taken away. Until that day, Lord Jesus, grant us, give us the desire, the humility, the power to live as people of peace for your glory and by your grace. Life's just too short, Lord Jesus, to stay mad. Melt our hearts, heal our relationships, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.